Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Rex Factor. This week, James the Second. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello! Hello! Welcome to Rex Factor, viewing all the kings and queens of England from Alfred the Great to Elizabeth the Second. This week, James the Second. Or as he's known in Scotland, James the Seventh. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Father James, grandfather James the Sixth. Uh, before we get on to James, um, you had a special mention that you wanted to... Oh yeah, to, uh, I would like to say hello to um, Priscelli Annan, who I think is our youngest listener, at 11. Um, so yeah, so if you're listening, there's a little bit of your heritage here, she's a bit Scottish. And also to say um, thanks to Katie Micklethwaite, who was listening back to apparently her favourite uh, of our episodes, the Harold II 1066 one. Oh yeah. And um, apparently we said, or I probably said, that Harold had no relation to Elizabeth II. Yeah. But apparently, because one of his daughters, Githa through her line, went off into various sort of European dynasties and rulers, and yeah. then they come back in to uh, Edward III. That is some serious so, knowledge, isn't so it? So actually, how the second is ultimately... Crikey, oh, wow, well, OK. And something like 27th great-grandfather, <laughs> or whatever. Very, very good uh, knowledge. Also, she pointed out that Charles II, who we did last week and enjoyed very much, yeah, was probably yeah. uh, one of the first people in the country to eat a pineapple. That's great little Rex fact. Indeed. Yeah. So thanks for that, Katie. But now we are moving on to Charles II's brother. He's got a lot to live up to compared to his brother. He certainly does. Let's see how he does. James II is born in 1633. He's the son of Charles I and Henrietta Maria. He becomes king in 1685 when he's about 52 years old. So he's a little more advanced yeah. uh, in years. And his relationship to Elizabeth II, like his brother, he is first cousin nine times removed. OK, those numbers are getting low. So, like Charles II again, he's got quite a similar start in life. So they both have a nice, happy childhood first few years, and then the Civil War comes along, mm. ruins everything. Unlike his older brother, he didn't go off into exile during the Civil War. He stayed with his father. So James is still in England when okay. the Civil War finishes. And in fact, he's in the um, headquarters of the Royalists in Oxford when that gets captured in 1646. So James is himself captured by Roundheads. How old is he then, 1646? Uh, he's about 13, 12, right. 13 then. Um, so he's captured, sent to London, all of his servants are dismissed, apparently even not so much as accepting a dwarf whom His Royal Highness was desirous to have retained with him. Sorry, he was not have, accepting a dwarf? 
James had a favourite dwarf, and apparently even the dwarf was dismissed from his service. Oh, right. He's, he's shaping up well already. It's a hard start for yeah. James. Yeah, it is. The Civil is. War. Parliament, um, particularly Cromwell, entertained the thought of maybe getting rid of Charles I by deposing him and replacing him with James as king. So Charles I, when he met um, with James, encouraged him to be loyal to his older brother and to try to escape and join him in exile. Right, because he wanted to carry on the dynasty as it should be. Exactly. Right. So, that's what James does. 1648, masterminded by one Colonel Joseph Blantfield. Um, for about two weeks, every evening, James played hide-and-seek with his siblings. The family got very good at it. It would take up to about half an hour for anyone to be able to find him. Is it like training? Yes. Brilliant. Well, and also, well training, but also um, diversion, so that people are used to James... Oh, I see, yeah, yeah. Okay, right, and not you, knowing yeah. where he was for a decent mm. amount of time. So one night, after two weeks, rather than just hiding in the wardrobe, he actually, as he actually mm. escapes. So he meets up with Blanfield, escapes into St James's Park, taken to a surgeon's house uh, near London Bridge, puts on some girls' clothes, it's a matter of disguise. He runs in the family, doesn't it? Yeah, like his brother, dressing up in disguise. Uh, then transferred by boat to Tilbury, boards a Dutch ship, and escapes into exile. Brilliant. We're a big adventure for a you know, 14-year-old, yeah, 15-year-old yeah, at this point. So, like Charles, the first, Charles II, his older brother, he has an exciting escape, yeah. dressed in disguise. And he then joins him in exile. The problem for James is that, unlike his brother, he isn't technically king in 1649 when their father is killed. Mm. So he's kind of living in his brother's shadow, and he hasn't got an awful lot to do. Yeah. So what he does is he joins the French army. The French army? Well, that's where they're in exile. At the French oh, court. Host, yeah, so he joins them and as a commissioned officer fighting under a famous French marshal named Turenne. Um, and apparently he does rather well for himself, fights bravely in various battles, gets promoted to lieutenant general, and it's quite a happy period. He's out of his brother's shadow, he's fighting, being brave, he's enjoying himself. Getting on with it. Yeah. Mm. Unfortunately for him, 1655, France make peace with Cromwell. Oh, I hate peace. So although Cromwell doesn't insist upon it, all the French don't insist upon it. James decides that actually he probably doesn't want to be in France anymore mm. as they're allied with England. So he goes off and joins the Spanish army instead. And he fights bravely for them as well, this time against the French. So he's a mercenary. Yes, indeed. He's become a royalist mercenary troop. And then, of course, everything changes. Cromwell died in 1658, and in 1660, Charles II was restored as King of England. Mm. He himself is already the Duke of York, so he's restored to that position. Also, he is that Lord High Admiral. And once again, he likes to get into the thick of it. He personally commands the fleet at the Battle of Lowestoft, where they had a rare victory. Oh, we, yeah, that was in Charles's, yeah. yeah. So that James was in command of the fleet as Lord yeah. High Admiral and was actually there in person. Right. In the thick of it. And also at the Great Fire of London, he was given control of operations after the mayor had... Um, yeah, said a woman would piss it out. Yes, yeah. which he then didn't. <laughs> Lazy. And uh, he won a great acclaim for this. So he's, he's getting the people's hearts and minds here. Well, in some ways he is, in others he isn't. If we recall, the biggest problem towards the end of Charles's reign, when things really were coming to a head, was the exclusion crisis. Yeah. yeah. And the exclusion crisis was where Whigs, particularly led by Lord Shaftesbury, wanted to exclude James from the succession. Because Charles didn't have a kid. Charles didn't have any children, mm -hmm. so James is going to be the next king, but James is a Catholic. Right, yeah. Yeah. which people aren't too happy about. James had decided, um, he thought about it very hard for a long time, and decided there was no justification for the Reformation and the separation from Rome, so he genuinely, full-heartedly converts to Catholicism. Oh, I mean, is that legal at this point? Oh, yes, it is still legal. 
Because there was that Charles's act was to say everything's all right, you can be everything you want. Charles tried that, but Parliament didn't like it at all. Right, okay. So Parliament dead set against Catholics. Yeah. The country at large, largely, is against Catholics, but James is a Catholic. And it's not entirely certain where, maybe sort of 1668-ish, James does out himself Mm -hmm. as a Catholic. Right. And so there's a lot of tension about this. People aren't too happy. In 1673, we had the Test Acts where Catholics prevented from holding major office. Mm. This didn't specifically exclude James from inheriting the throne, but he does resign his position as Lord High Admiral. Right. Because he is a Catholic and he holds office. But then it was in 1678 when we had the Popish plot where Titus Oates claimed there was a plot to assassinate Charles II put James on the throne and restore England to Catholicism, that's when the tensions really started to come along. That's when the Whigs and Shaftesbury put forward bills in Parliament wanting to exclude James from being able to succeed on account of the fact that he was Catholic. Yeah. And then Charles refused to do it, stood firm against them, kept dismissing Parliament whenever they put the bill forward. Yeah. Things got very, very tense to the extent that uh, Charles actually sent James, in effect, into exile first to Brussels and then later to Edinburgh, just so that they could allow tensions in London to quieten down. Clever Charles. Keep James Mm. out. Things will settle a bit. Mm. And ultimately, Charles is able to uh, see it off. As we said, the Whigs sort of overplayed their hand a bit with the violent rhetoric. Charles and the Tories outmanoeuvred the Whigs. And then 1682 uh, to 85, James is back in England, back at court and playing quite an important role. And so, in 1685, Charles II dies. Mm. Sad day. Very sad day. Now, we might have thought that this would be a dangerous situation because James is going to be the first Catholic to become monarch since mm. Mary I. Yeah. And when that was, what, 15? 130 years ago. Yeah. However, he succeeds with no major opposition whatsoever. James, in his first address to Parliament, has some very good soundings. He says, I shall make it my endeavour to preserve this government, both in church and state, as it is by law established. I know the principles of the Church of England are for monarchy, and the members of it have shown themselves good and lawful subjects. Therefore, I shall always take care to defend and support it. So he's saying he's not going to change anything? He's saying, you're loyal, the Church of England's loyal, I'm going to do what I can to make sure you just stay exactly as you are, and don't change a thing. That's pretty good. Everyone should be pretty happy with that. Parliament chuffed with that. Earl of Peterborough says, Never king was proclaimed with more applause. He has made a speech to the council that did charm everybody. I doubt not but to see a happy reign. Mm. And sure enough, Parliament, very enthusiastic, they get behind him, vote a hugely generous revenue to James, average income of about £2 million a year. Wow. Probably the wealthiest monarch since Henry VIII. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's quite a bit now, isn't it? It's the first time we started well, seeing serious exactly. figures. Millions. So it's, it's starting really well. The thing is that... Anglicans and the Tories and the Church of England people, because of the Reformation, they believe that the king is effectively God's representative on earth. Yeah. So their loyalty must be initially yeah. to the king. Even if he is a Catholic, they think, well, that is whom God has chosen to be king. Mm. So everyone gets behind him. Okay. However, he does face some rebellions. A couple of people, really, try to be a bit troublesome. Firstly, we have the Marquis of Argyle, son of a Scottish covenanter. So Presbyterians. Right. Um, whose father was executed uh, after the Restoration. He launched a futile, rather ill-prepared, ill-coordinated and unsupported rebellion in Scotland, which was very quickly suppressed, and he was executed. Job done. Yeah. More serious was the rebellion from the Duke of Monmouth. Oh, who was he before? Did we see it here before? We did. He 
is the eldest illegitimate son of Charles II. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who they wanted to try and get on the throne. Because he's Protestant. So Shaftesbury, the Whig leader, had considered maybe mm. that Monmouth was the figurehead for an alternative yeah. king mm. to James II. Duke of Monmouth had been in exile in his final years because he'd been a little bit involved in some of the plots at court in the final years. However, this comes along. He's a handsome, charismatic, fervently Protestant man He thinks, yes, this is my chance. I'm going to get rid of James. No one wants a Catholic. They'll want me. Yeah. So, lands at Lyme Regis in Dorset, accuses James of being responsible for the Great Fire of London, the Popish plot to assassinate Charles II, and indeed of poisoning Charles II. Big words. And he declares himself king. Bigger words. Mm. Mm. Unfortunately for him, things don't go very well. (laughs) He only has about 3,000 people that join his army, and they're none of them gentlemen. They're all quite lowly types. And he's defeated at the Battle of Sedgemoor by Lord Feversham and John Churchill, future uh, Marlborough. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Duke of Marlborough. Monmouth fled from the battle, but was uh, discovered dressed as a shepherd hiding in a ditch. It really does run in the family. That's (laughs) unbelievable. A few days later. Um, he was under retainer from Parliament, so they could be executed as a traitor straight away, but he wins an audience with James... Rather pathetically, begs for forgiveness, claimed that he didn't want to do any of this and he was under duress from evil men. So this is his uncle, step-uncle. Yeah. And um, James II, disgusted at his cowardice, and he is executed. Right. So, not very good for the Duke of Monmouth. Half-uncle, sorry. Half-uncle. Yeah, but for James II, this is very good. He's had that speech Mm. to Parliament. They gave him lots of money. Two rebellions, but Parliament in both countries completely behind him. Neither rebellion gets any support and completely destroyed. Yeah. James is thinking, hey, I'm pretty good at this. It's a very good start. Yeah. However, there are problems afoot. James isn't just Catholic, he's something of a missionary. Preachy. He believes in divine providence and he thinks it's protected him through the civil war, the exclusion crisis, the Monmouth rebellion. He thinks, clearly, God has been protecting me for a reason. He wants me to establish Catholicism. Not like Mary would have done as um, replacing Protestantism and the Church of England, but he wanted to make Catholicism a legitimate religion. Yeah. So he wanted there to be toleration for Catholics and for Protestants. Well, that seems pretty reasonable. Seems pretty reasonable. However, there's a lot of tension around this. Particularly in current times, 1685, Louis XIV, the great powerful king in France, has just repealed the Edict of Nantes. And this was an act in France which had helped um, to quell the religious wars in France by granting toleration to Protestants. Mm. He repeals it. Right. So in France they're saying no more toleration of Protestants. So sure enough, they come flooding over to England, telling everyone about all these horror stories about cruelty at the hands of Catholics. Yeah. And James is quite pro-Louis Fourteenth anyway. They are sort of cousins yeah. in yeah, some yeah. way through the mother. So you know that's creating a bit of tension. Any sense of Catholics being reasonable isn't going to wash. Right. However, James was encouraged by the support that he'd had from Parliament up to this point, so he wants to repeal the Test Acts, which prevent Catholics from holding public office. Mm. Goes to Parliament, wants to do it. He also wants to have Catholics become officers in a standing army. Oh, and there was a, day, there was a worry about having a static king at the same There was, right. and... That in itself would have been controversial. And mm. after the rebellions, where you've got an army of about 20,000, James is saying, I'm not going to disband it, and what's more, I'm going to appoint lots of Catholics to be officers in it. Yeah, this is quite testy, isn't it? So Parliament reject it. Mm. They won't have it. What 
ultimately happens, like we've seen many times before with the Stuarts, Parliament is dismissed. Right. And we have rising tensions, as you would expect. Initially, James had hoped that he'd continue to get the support of the loyalist Anglicans who'd been with him before, so Mm -hmm. he thought, I'll work with them to get the toleration stuff going along. Tries to convert his uh, leading ministers, Mm -hmm. but to no avail. Then tries to seek the support of Protestant dissenters, so people like the Quakers. Um, Indeed, befriends a Quaker leader called William Penn, um, after whom Pennsylvania is named. But they view him with suspicion because they... Although they're not Church of England, they are still Protestant and they're still quite anti-Catholic. Mm. So they don't really trust him. So instead, James decides, right, well, I'm just going to have to get rid of these laws that I don't like and put Catholics in place instead. So he decides he's going to get rid of the Test Acts by his own means. Without Parliament. Without Parliament. So there is a case of Godden versus Hales. So this is where there was a Catholic officer that was in place and James basically brought it to court so that the judges would decide whether or not James could have dispensation to just... Replace him with a Catholic one. Not have the test acts in place. He could just Mm. ignore the law, Mm. in effect. Obviously, he wanted them to vote in his favour, so he purged the uh, bench of judges of people who didn't agree with him, placed them with people that did agree. (laughs) And uh, sure enough, they uh, judged that kings were sovereign princes, the laws were their lords, and so they had the prerogative to dispense with said laws. As so they saw fit. This is definitely turning into tyrant here. Very much so. So obviously that's basically saying that Parliament is pretty much just... Null and void. Yeah. Null and void in terms of what the king can do. Mm. The king wants to ignore the law. He can. Have they learned nothing over the past hundred <laughs> years? <laughs> What's more, he makes lots of Catholic appointments. They're appointed to Privy Council. Opposition MPs, uh, Protestants, are uh, taken away from government positions. Replaces justices of the peace in uh, local government with Catholics. Indeed, the first papal nuncio from Rome since the time of Mary I is brought to court. Right, so it's proper return to Catholicism, almost. In terms of people in positions of power at central and local government, he is trying to get Catholics mm. in place. We haven't seen a papal representative for no. hundreds of years. And their tensions at the top of all the three kingdoms. In England, the... Um, rather sort of roguish Earl of Sunderland, who does sort of convert to Catholicism, he encourages a Catholic cabal at court, so he ousts his Protestant rival, the Earl of Rochester. In Scotland, the Catholic Drummond brothers oust the Protestant Lord Treasurer, mm. tries to oppose them. And in Ireland, Richard Talbot, uh, Talbot, the Earl of Tyrconnell, is made the Deputy Lord Lieutenant, and he purges the army of Protestants. Oh, this is turning really ugly. And in education, he intervenes as well. He believes the reason the Church of England's got such a monopoly is that, um, in terms of people's religion in the country, is that it's got a monopoly in education. Yeah. So Catholicism doesn't get a fair crack of the whip. Yeah. So he thinks, as long as uh, Catholicism has an equal footing in education, it will inevitably become more popular because people will see the right faith mm. become mm. Catholic. So he orders the fellows of Magdalen College, Oxford, to elect a Catholic master and uh, dismisses them when they refuse it. Right. And so he's just puts going someone in place. Riding roughshod over every institution. Pretty much. He's going to face some problems. Well, indeed, we come along to the final straws. 1687, James issues a Declaration of Indulgence, which is something Charles II had failed to do previously, which required complete religious toleration, so it negates laws that punish Catholics. Mm-hmm. And 1688, he updates this and requires that the clergy will read it from their pulpits. 
However, we have the case of the seven bishops, where the Archbishop of Canterbury, six other bishops, petitioned James to withdraw the 1688 Declaration. They say, we're not going to read out this mm. at our pulpits. We're not going to do it. They stress their loyalty, but James puts them on trial for seditious libel, even though they've only really petitioned him. Libel against the king. Mm. Oh However, it's a PR disaster. Bishops play up to it very well, stress their loyalty, acquitted by a jury and released from the Tower of London to great celebration hey. by uh, the public. Excellent. So not, uh, not, not a great move yeah. for James. But the big, big tipping point is when his second wife, also Catholic, Mary of Medina, gives birth to a son. So they can see this carrying on for a while. From his first marriage uh, to a woman, Anne Hyde, um, James has had two surviving daughters, Mary and Anne. They are both Protestant. So while James doesn't have any more, because they've grown up apart from James. Right. So while they are both the heirs, mm. people can think, well, we don't like what James is doing, but he's not particularly young, and once he's dead, we'll have Catholic, uh, Protestants in place again. So we could just sit it out, mm. put mm. up with it for ten years, and then we'll have Protestantism back. Mm. Now he's had a son born, people think, well, that's a Catholic dynasty we've got established now. And mm. a son, obviously, seems more powerful mm. than a daughter. So this is pretty bad stuff. Mm. Rumours that um, it was actually a fake that had been brought in on a warming pan because she'd suffered various miscarriages and infant deaths. That was their first child that actually survived. Right. So lots of rumours and things afoot. Princess Anne, his uh, second daughter, wrote to her older sister that there was much reason to believe it a false belly. <laughs> so th- what, there was that, people were that concerned that they thought they were going to that length? Yeah. Wow. So, 1688, we have the Glorious Revolution. Yeah, this is a biggie. And the main chap here is William of Orange. We've come across him before, haven't we, in, a, um, in one of the Dutch wars? Uh, we have, yes. It's unfortunate that he is the second William of Orange. Oh, OK. So right, we have so used that phrase before. Right. He is the grandson of Charles I. Mm-hmm. So, actually, himself is about the third in line to the throne before the birth of James's son, yeah. after the two daughters. Previously had been excluded from his offices in the Netherlands, but in 1672, a popular revolution made him think of the Stadtholder. So he's kind of like a sort of prince. Okay. Um, often treated as junior member of the family by Charles II and James II. Um, however, he does marry James's daughter, Mary. Well, that's a bit close, isn't it? It's very close, yes, cousins. <laughs> and his relationship with James breaks down, not because of the marriage, necessarily, <laughs> but because of foreign policy. William, as ruler of the Netherlands, Protestant nation, his main concern is Louis Fourteenth and French Catholic expansion. Mm. So William's trying to build a sort of an alliance in Europe against Louis Fourteenth, but James is sort of seen as being pro-Louis and pro-France. Yeah, yeah, so there's a family infighting there. So he's got a vested interest in intervening. What's more, there are negotiations going on from powerful men at James's court asking William to intervene. And what year is this? We're 1688, okay. we're up to now. Mm. So we have the Immortal Seven, who are um, a mixture of Whigs and Tories, who write to James and pledge him support if he invades England and forces James to make Mary his heir and not the son. Right, but so seven is, doesn't seem that many. Well, I mean, they're sort of the powerful men like at the cabinet at court. Yeah. yeah. So William raises a massive army, lands at Torbay on the fifth uh, of November, sixteen eighty-eight, 
and declares that he will pledge to counter all of James's breaches of the law and to restore English liberties. So we've got a proper big invasion, about 20-odd thousand troops that William's brought over. Mm. James starts backtracking at this point because he (laughs) thinks this is a bit worrying. Something's up here. (laughs) What's my cousin doing with this surprise visit? (laughs) And 20,000 armed men. James pledges to call back Parliament, which he hadn't done since he dismissed it. No Catholics would sit in this Parliament. Rehabilitates Bishop of London, rehabilitates the Fellows of Magdalen College, plus various other officials that he'd kicked out. Mm. So he tried to bring back all the Protestants, going, oh God, oh God, oh God, sorry. (laughs) Didn't mean it. Oh, that's never going to work. But we have an opportunity for a massive Hastings-esque battle at Salisbury. William's got his troops. James joins his army at Salisbury. Massive army, bigger than William's army. And it's a chance for a winner-takes-all battle. Who's going to control the kingdom? Yeah, we haven't seen one of these for ages. Unfortunately, James has something of a breakdown at this stage. Suffers severe nosebleeds and a complete loss of nerve. Really? Oh, he absolutely loses it. He's convinced he can't trust his army to fight against William. Returns to London without battle having been fought. So he just gives, he rolls over? Well, he doesn't give up as that. He doesn't say, oh, you win. Yeah. He just decides not to fight the battle. Right. And unfortunately, he suffers very, very severe defections from his leading people at court, and in particular the army. Yeah, the army would, yeah. So John Churchill, James's protege previously, the man that defeated Monmouth, mm-hmm. moves over to William because he wants to protect the Church of England. Mm-hmm. His own daughter, of course, Mary, married to William... Mm-hmm. And then Princess Anne, his second daughter, when he gets back to London, she's scarpered off to William as well. Wow. As he oh. says himself, God help me, my very children have forsaken me. But he, and he thought he was protected by God. Yes. <laughs> oh dear. So his army officers are abandoning him, people at Parliament abandoning him, his children abandoning him. His everything, the walls are tumbling down, he's just completely he's out of it. losing it. And so he decides he's got to get out of there. Yeah. Because he thinks that they're going to kill him, they're going to kill his son. I mean, just like what happened to Charles I, his father, of course. Mm-hmm. So he sends Mary of Medina and the son off. They go into exile in France. And then James himself, once again, dresses up as a woman. <laughs> this, Excellent. This time laundry woman. Throws the great seal into the River Thames. Yeah. Because that's the thing which people need to be able to sort of pass law. So it kind of delays yeah. them a bit because he's chucked it away. Gets onto a boat. Heads off. What an unglamorous but hilarious exit. It gets worse, because he's captured by Kentish fishermen who are looking for papists. (laughs) And he's brought back. Who's this bearded laundry woman? Yes. (laughs) So, James has been captured by some Kentish fishermen. However, he's recognised by some royal guards, Mm. because the fishermen don't know who he is, and then they bring him back to London. Yeah. They might just think he's the archetypal papal... Well, that's what Catholics look like. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> yes, laundry ladies. So, obviously, I mean, obviously in London there's huge tension because there's an invading army, there's all the Catholic stuff that's gone on before. It's chaos. People don't know what the hell's going to happen. He doesn't have any clothes. They think it's going to be civil war again, yeah. basically. So James comes back to London, but he gets a pleasant surprise when he's greeted by cheering crowds. Because <laughs> he's the king. People think, ah, oh, the king's back, all is well, all is restored. So James thinks, ah I can do this. The yeah. people love me. Yeah. William of Orange had been, when he'd heard that James had gone off into exile, quite happily marching off to London. And then he has to stop when he hears that uh, James has come back. 
So while James is sitting all smug and thinking, oh, people like me after all, William sends him a very strongly worded letter telling him (laughs) in no uncertain terms to vacate the capital, which James is uh, given the letter at midnight, apparently, in bed, Mm. woken up, reads the letter, and full with the confidence of all the people behind him, James promptly agrees. (laughs) This guy, he's hoped any whiff of a challenge. And it gets even worse because um, William doesn't want to kill him, obviously. It's controversial enough to do yeah, that, to yeah. invade. And what's more, it's his wife's father. It's his father-in-law. Mm. So, you know, he doesn't want to have James in prison because that's quite awkward. Well, so it's going to be worse at Christmas around the dinner table. Well, exactly. So he'd hoped that James would have just yeah. made a better job of escaping the first time. <laughs> so the second time, James asks if he can go to Rochester because James is thinking, ha, Rochester's near to the coast. Yeah. And William thinks, ha, Rochester's near to the coast. Yeah, sure, I'll go to yeah. Rochester. Yeah. So James thinks, oh, this is brilliant. Yeah. And of course, William wants him to escape, so he leaves it largely unguarded. Yeah. Yeah. So James thinks, oh, God, I've done it again. <laughs> so William basically allows James to escape, and the second time he does manage to get into exile and he goes to France. Oh, well done. Crikey, <laughs> Moses. So James is adjudged to have abdicated by running yeah. away, and William and Mary are declared joint rulers. Now, there was chat about this. They were joint rulers then. William III and Mary II, they are both king and queen in their own right. Mary's claim. Mary's claim, but William also has a legitimate claim himself. Okay. We will go into the detail of that next time. Yep, because that was James. Because that was James, but of course, we now have the artist formerly known as King. (laughs) For the first time ever, we have a king with an afterlife because he's still alive. Yeah. And at large. So, what's going to happen? He's going to try and get his throne back. Oh, no. Initially, he goes off and is received warmly by Louis XIV, set up at the court of uh, Saint-Germain. And James is probably quite happy. You know, he thinks, well, maybe God's not on my side after all. I'll just stay here. But Louis XIV knows that now William is king of England. He's going to bring the English into the European war against France. Yeah, yeah. So Louis thinks, well, the first thing I need to do is to neutralise William. At at least keep him in England, if not kick him out. Mm. So he wants James to go back take his throne. Mm. So they decide that they're going to support the campaign in Ireland. Right. Because Ireland is, of course, largely Catholic in terms of its populace. And once more, if we recall his mate Richard Talbot, the Earl of Tyrconnell, has purged the Irish army largely of Protestants. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's a good stepping stone into England. Yeah. So... Talbot, he's got the Catholic army, keen to take control of the whole island, and James arrives in 1689 to restore himself. Mm, what's he dressed as? I, I think he's still in male clothing oh, at this right, stage. Okay, but Tries to take control of the whole island. Um, in sight, obviously, is going to be rebels from the Protestant areas, Ulster. Mm. And there is a siege at Derry, um, which lasts for 105 days. Crikey. Um, but he's successful in holding out, so they fail to take Derry. Okay, giving time for William to muster up an army and come and sort things out. So William, now William III, brings his troops over from England in 1690 and he decides, right, kick James out of Ireland. William goes straight for the jugular, heads straight for James, Battle of the Boyne, William is victorious and James is defeated. Not Again, not entirely through the Irish army and the French, of course, there's lots of French troops, not entirely through them really being completely destroyed and defeated, just they retreat and so lose the battle. Again? They yeah. just... Just sort of head back. 
That's weird. It maybe just doesn't know how to do it. And what's more, James leaves the battlefield very quickly and decides it's probably best if I just, you know... Exile. Exile again. What's so wrong with it? (laughs) So James runs away again, leaves Ireland, and this time he isn't coming back. Yeah. Hopes for another attempt in 1692, but when the French fleet is defeated at La Hogue, he knows he's not going to be able to launch another naval assault mm. on in landing. 1696, he supports the plot to assassinate William, but that's discovered, it fails, and James loses more credibility because he supported an assassination attempt. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, he ends up uh, full of penance and melancholy, largely ignored and not given much respect at Saint-Germain because the French think, well, he's not all that, really, is he? <laughs> After the debacle in Ireland. And in 1701, age 67, he dies. Oh, God. So Louis the Fourteenth buries him with honour and recognises his son as James the Third. That was so unimpressive, James. It uh, it didn't go very well. No, did it? no, must try harder. So that is uh, the reign and after reign. Mm-hmm. Of, That's a weird one, isn't it? It is. Yeah, of James the Second. So now we will uh, review him, see if he's uh, <laughs> see how well he's going to do. Yeah. Battleliness. Well. We forget, but at the start, there was some impressive stuff for battliness. When he was in exile in the French army, he did really well. Yeah, yeah. Fought bravely with distinction under Marshal Turenne. An observer noted that he ventures himself and charges gallantry when anything is to be done. At uh, Etampes, um, Hyde, Earl of Clarendon, noted that he behaved himself with extraordinary courage and gallantry. The siege of uh, Mouzon, he participated in it, very conspicuous, puts himself in dangerous positions, and afterwards was promoted to the rank of Lieutenant General. Yeah. yeah. And again, at Arras, 1654, he was amidst the fighting, men killed really close to him. Yeah, yeah. So he shows the bravery. Yeah, yeah. And as Lord High Admiral, he's really quite uh, gung-ho, he's very pro-war. Clarendon again noted that uh, having been even from his childhood in the command of armies and in his nature inclined to the most difficult and dangerous enterprises, he was already weary of having so little to do and too impatiently longed for any war in which he knew he could not but have the chief command. It's like he's a different person, because I totally forgot that all yeah. that stuff. Indeed, he's saying himself, all the world rides us and I think we shall never ride anybody. Mm. He's eager to get out there and of course at the Battle of Lowestoft in 1665, he personally commands the English fleet, that defeats the Dutch. And kills their, uh, destroys their flagship and stuff. Yeah, exactly. Despite uh, the opposition of his mother, his brother and his wife, hard-fought victory. Mm. And people, again, on his ship, right next to him, powerful earls, are killed right next to him. Mm. And afterwards, Charles II forbade him to have any further involvement in battles because he just so willingly and carelessly will just put <laughs> himself in a position of danger. So Charles said, I can't put you there again because you'll end up getting killed and you can't be killed because you're the Duke of York. Yeah, yeah. And he puts down those rebellions. Yes. This is... But what, what? Well, we have the... Yeah, the, the Monmouth Rebellion. Technically, James isn't actually involved. Right. He's sat okay. away, others are doing it. But nevertheless, this we've is got a, a young, person. brave, yeah. gallant... Successful. Successful, gung-ho soldier. Yeah. And then he, he's done a Stephen. Yes. Yet again, we've seen another Stephen where it all goes wrong when he becomes king. All goes horribly wrong. As we saw with James, um, his relationship with William, he's got a rather antiquated foreign policy. James mm. still thinks that alliances are based on religion rather than self-interest. Mm. He thinks that's how the spheres of influence work. He refuses to believe that Louis XIV would ally with the Turkish Sultan against the Holy Roman Emperor. But of course Louis XIV did because Louis XIV is trying to aggrandise his own French mm. interests. Mm. 
regardless of people's religion. Mm. Reality was, Louis XIV is dominant power, and William was trying to get an alliance together against him. James and England, the only nation that haven't really come out on one side or the other. Mm. And uh, there's an election in Cologne uh, to the vacant archbishopric, where Pope Innocent XI refused to invest Louis XIV candidate and instead picked the sort of Grand Alliance candidate. So this was making it inevitable. There was going to be war in Europe. And this is the point of William's thinking, you know, you can't stay neutral. Yeah, and to be honest, you've seen more French than mm-hmm. anything else to me. So this meant that the Dutch really need to push the issue with England. Yeah. So by his sort of oblivious, antiquated nature, James is helping to bring foreign power against him. Yeah, totally, because he was forcing the Dutch hand, they had to remove him. And of course, because of this, Louis XIV is really too busy dealing with all these countries to really do too much. Mm, To help. Help. And yet, 1688, James was ill-prepared for the invasion. He didn't think it was coming until pretty late in the day. Mm. Despite the fact that uh, Louis XIV's spies had warned him of this, and Louis had offered troops and uh, military aid to help defeat the invasion. It's quite arrogant. He just presumed that everyone would be on his side. He did. He also, I think, presumed that William was massing troops to fight France rather than to invade mm. England. Um, but the French were said to have been surprised at James's surprising lethargy mm. in his preparations. Even th- still, it was winnable. James's fleet is about the same size as William's, and James's army is about twice the size, so we should have been able to see him off. Yeah. Um, William was in an awkward position at Exeter. It took him two weeks to disembark. And there were no mass defections from the rank and file of the army straight away. Mm. So there's no sense in which people are flocking to William. So it was just, he lost the battle rather than William winning it. Well, well, he didn't even fight it, of course. He just went along, had a lot of nosebleeds, worried that everyone was going to abandon him. and so I bet he passed that off as an injury as well. (laughs) It's happened again. (laughs) And he's just very pessimistic and uninspiring. He doesn't think the army can be trusted to fight. Bemoans all of the defections... Um, as you would, but he gets a bit mopey about it. Mm. And then he starts speaking at length of his deposed predecessors, like Edward II, Richard II, Charles I. So he's... Why would you compare yourself to that gang? Well, exactly. He's, mm, he's not very good, Graham. Well, he thinks he's done it. He ends yeah. up fleeing without even putting up a fight. So bad, however, that William probably didn't even expect to become king when he invaded. He was just trying to force James to do yeah. things he wanted him to do. In the end... William becomes king, and not only does he become king, but he has to help James run away. <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. He was, I mean, that's a perfect example of his uselessness. Yeah. So, someone who's so promising doesn't go very well. And then, of course, after James has lost the throne, he tries to get it back in Ireland. Yeah. That's also terrible. James probably just wanted to stay in pretty comfortable exile. Mm. But Louis XIV was like, no, go on, shoot. Yeah. Out you go. And you keep. And um, Talbot and the Irish Parliament, as we saw, saw an opportunity to reverse uh, English Protestantism and the conquest, repealed, uh, they called a parliament, which was controversial in itself because it was meant to be subservient to the English Parliament, mm. repealed the Act of Settlement, which had driven Catholics from their land, and uh, established their independence from the English Parliament. With James there? With James there. Which, of course, loses James' support from Protestants in Ireland and everyone in England. James, of course, didn't want to be King of Ireland without being King of England. He had to actually reject a bill which split the two. So he ended up just, I mean, ultimately leading neither. But even when he was there, he was busy failing at that. 
Uh, Siege of Derry, 1689, Tolbert marched against Prosser's stronghold. Um, James went along in person to demand surrender on numerous occasions, but was rebuffed and apparently shot at. And it may have been that he actually made it worse, and you know, there's some debate as to whether the siege might have been less inclined to keep on going had it not been in face of this yeah, I think Catholic tyrant. If James is going to do anything, you can be pretty sure he's going to make the situation worse. Yes. <laughs> Whatever he does. Don't, what, just don't let him say anything. And it was an awful siege, then 105 days, apparently something like 8,000 of 30,000 population died. Crumbs. And in 1690, the Battle of the Boyne, William brings his army over... After a strong artillery exchange, William's troops crossed this ford at Old Bridge in heavy, um, under heavy fire and suffer much worse casualties, actually, than James's forces. But at least they press on. Right? They press on, cavalry help, Irish forces, French forces retreat, and then James sort of runs off, and then they end up just having to leave, and they lose the battle. <laughs> what about anticlimax if you're there, like... Oh yeah! Oh, they've gone. Yeah, you'd, oh, you'd need an outlet. So the army's largely unscathed. They fight on after James is gone, but James, as you say, lost his nerve again, left the battle, left Ireland. <laughs> so James then acquired the nickname and uh, parental guidance for this one: Seamus and Shacha, or uh, James the Beshitten. Why would that? How does that work? Just because he's rubbish? Yes, right. just James the shit. Right. Yeah. But now, of all the nicknames you can earn, that's <laughs> that's pretty bad, but pretty accurate. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's schizophrenic, isn't it? I don't know how to score this one. Yeah. I'm going to score it badly, because mm. the time when he's king, which is really what we're looking for, though it is a biographical podcast, it's so awful, it's so tough, I can't go beyond two. Mm. I mean, I know he did some good stuff earlier on, um, but that was fighting for a different country. Yes. Two different countries, so I'm not going to count that. So what I've got to go on is... And the Monmouth Rebellion, he wasn't really there, and yeah. it was ill-prepared by the other side. Yeah. So he's got the Battle of Lowestoft, which I'll give him two points for. Yeah. Because it was fun. Yes. And he's but, And he won. Mm. But it wasn't while he was raining, and the rest of it was so bad. Game over. I'm, I'm going to give him 0.5 for Lowestoft and the early stuff. I think to lose your throne... Uh, and your crown without putting up any kind of battle. That's very true. That and have, yeah. to the extent that the enemy commander has to help you run away because you can't even do that <laughs> yourself. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah, two is quite generous. Isn't it? I've got to stick with what I said, but that is, I mean... 2.5. Scandal. This is better. Yes, good. As a Catholic, and, you know, you might think, oh, he's not going to be as much fun as his brother Charles II. No. This is a quote from Charles when he was speaking to the French ambassador. I do not believe there are two men who love women more than you and I do, but my brother, devout as he is, loves them still more. Really? That's from Charles? That's what Charles says. Wow. And that is a man who loved women. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. James is something of a Rogerer. Right. <laughs> Samuel Pepys uh, noted that he was the most unguarded ogre of his time. Uh-huh. Apparently he did eye my wife mightily. Really? Crumbs. Did not see this coming. Numerous mistresses. Um, but what's more is a bit odd is that apparently he has a reputation for having quite ugly mistresses. What? So Charles joked that um, his mistresses were given to him by priests as penance for his Catholic sins. <laughs> oh, Charles. Good old Charles. <laughs> I miss him. And he's quite a clumsy um, seducer. So he relies more upon his powerful status than any kind of animal magnetism or charm. Oh, which he really? lacks completely. So this is a man, Grammont, observing one of James's tactics mm. in seducing a woman. He entertained her with what he had in his head, 
telling her miracles of the cunning of foxes and the metal of horses, giving her accounts of broken legs and arms, dislocated shoulders, and other curious and entertaining adventures, and which his eyes told her the rest. Well, I mean, I, I'm the same school of thought. If I'm chatting someone up, I often tell them about foxes and short horseshoes and stuff. Um, Breaking limbs. Breaking limbs. <laughs> he basically just sort of mumbles uncharmingly about whatever drizzle is in his head. Yeah. And then gives says, them a wink and so says, So shall we? I'm the Duke of York, shall we? <laughs> Arrogant and a bit lecherous. It's, yes. It doesn't, he doesn't have any of the stuff that Charles did do that made it fun. No, so it's, it's the same sort of... It's much more sordid and mm. unpleasant. Yeah. His marriages are also very controversial and scandalous. First one is to a woman called Anne Hyde. She was the daughter of Edward Hyde, the Earl of Clarendon, who was Charles's chief minister at yeah. the start of the Restoration. Uh, starts an affair with her, gets her pregnant, and promises to marry her. Mm-hmm. This is very controversial. Hyde's enemies already think that he's too powerful. Mm-hmm. So then having her marry the heir to the throne... Yeah. Step yeah, too yeah. far for a lot of yeah. people. What's more, Hyde didn't really know what James had been up to. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a bit of a shock for him. Yeah, and people think the gap in the social rank is just far too large. So what Duke do you of do? York to just... Well, sure enough, he vacillates. He delays. So he just doesn't bother? Well, there are rumours that Anne has enjoyed pleasures with other men. So James thinks, oh, I can't have this. <laughs> Marriage is invalid, I won't have it. But he changes his mind when she has a son. And he thinks, oh, could do with one of those. Yeah. Then he has further doubts about the parenthood. So he's going, oh, actually, I don't think this marriage is valid after all. It's another fake one. Um, Charles II, however, forces his hand and says, shut up, unless there's a reason to annul the marriage legally, you've you just got to stick with it and marry her. Mm. And there is no legal reason not to, so he does, and he marries her. All this all this time, while turning into a Catholic, it just it, nothing <laughs> seems to sit well. No. <laughs> Anne Hyde, uh, the last English woman to marry an heir presumptive or a parent until Diana. Really? Yeah. What? Last English woman to do so, after that it's all foreign. Oh, right. Mm. Oh, I suppose so, yeah. Uh, apparently she dominated James in all things but his codpiece. <laughs> and uh, di- she died in 1671 through morbid obesity. Crumbs. So, oh, God. So then he decides he's going to marry again. Mm-hmm. And once again he decides, oh, I like this woman who just is near by. <laughs> I'm going to marry her. <laughs> so he writes um, to another woman, promising marriage. Charles, um, very cross with him, says he can't believe James would be so stupid twice. <laughs> and insists that this time he does it by the book. So instead, he marries a woman, Mary of Medina. James is old enough to be her father. She's about 15, he's about 45 when they marry. And she's Catholic. So the country's in uproar at her in him marrying another Catholic. And poor Mary, rather a sort of sheltered Catholic upbringing, comes to the country, is really cross that she's there at all. She can't have her own um, chapel. Mm. And when she sees him, apparently she bursts into tears. (laughs) Oh, no. Oh, God. Um, but she's, you know, she's quite nice. Peterborough says that she was tall and admir- admirably shaped. Her complexion was of the last of fairness. Her hair black as jet. So were her eyebrows and her eyes. But the latter so full of light and sweetness as it did dazzle and charm. She sounds lovely. She's very lovely. And, despite everything, they actually have quite a successful, affectionate relationship. They get on quite well. James, of course, is also Catholic, so, you know, mm. they've got that in common. And uh, she brings a bit of youthful exuberance. To court, so she loved toboggan rides and pelting James's snowballs. Uh, but James was still unfaithful, but he was less public about it, and he felt guilty. Well, brilliant. 
<laughs> he just said, I don't feel good about this. Let's carry on anyway. Yes. <laughs> Apparently, some say that's why he then started taking on uglier women. Oh, right. His mistress. <laughs> uh, but despite this, and despite Mary of Modena really liking him, she probably preferred Charles. Yeah, who wouldn't? Very sad when he died, and she said, he was always kind to me, and so truly amiable and good-natured that I loved him very much. Yeah, go Charles. Good old Charles. But of course, the biggest scandal for James is the fact that he's Catholic. Yeah, yeah, big, big. First Catholic since Mary I, John Fox's Book of Martyrs, Protestant Martyrs, still very much fresh in the popular imagination, but he goes beyond being Catholic to actually promoting it. Mm. And this is what gets people really upset. Charles has understood the danger of being publicly Catholic, James doesn't really get it. Mm. Such is the mistrust that when he has a son, people really believe the rumour that the child is a fake yeah. and a changeling. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, James... Um, it's quite a lot there. He wasn't without scandal. No, he wasn't. Um, but it wasn't quite as fun. No, I mean, and it's the same sort of scandal as Charles. We've got the um, sexual proclivity. Yep. Um, we've got the whiffs of... Well, with Charles, it was the whiffs of Catholicism and with... James, it's the actual Catholicism. <laughs> but it's just less fun. It's done, as we were saying, it's just a bit dark, mm. more depraved, a bit darker. But that shouldn't mean that he gets the lowest no, score just because it's more depraved. Yes, <laughs> I mean, that should mean that he gets more. but if, And actually definitely get more with this whole Catholicism thing and losing the crown. Mm. Though uh, I suppose that's more subjectivity and respect for yeah. yourself. But it's got to be, it's got to be more. So what do we give Charles? We gave Charles a high score, 16. I, I mean, I've got, it's got to be 8. Mm. I think 8 as well. Yeah. I'm not going to go higher than that. So that's a 16 as well for James II. Good scandal from the Stuart boys. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think, OK, that's fair to go both, because I reckon um, Charles probably had more sex. Yeah. yeah. And better sex. <laughs> <laughs> Subjectivity. Well, I mean, there, there are. I'll, I'll try and make an argument for James mm. having good subjectivity. Go on, then. He does genuinely attempt to get religious toleration. Yeah, yeah. And he isn't trying to replace Protestantism with Catholicism in legal terms. He doesn't want to make Catholicism the religion of state. He just wants them to be on an equal playing field, which is fine. And I think that is good subjectivity. He just goes about it like a bull in a china shop. He went on a, a speaking tour on uh, the west of England trying to drum up support for his religious <laughs> toleration. He says, suppose that there should be a law made that all black men should be imprisoned. It would be unreasonable, and we had as little reason to quarrel with other men for being of different religious opinions as for being of different complexions. Really? Hmm. When he said black men, did he mean just darker-skinned men, or did you reckon he actually meant people of different race? I think actually of a different race. He didn't just mean people that got a bit of a tan. <laughs> That's phenomenal. Yeah. So he's saying, so he's taking it for granted that people view racism as wrong, even at this age, and they, so you wouldn't imagine that to happen. In, in legal terms, at least. In legal terms, yeah. Mm. But then, 100 years later, we've got the slave trade. Well, we can come back to that. <laughs> also insists upon religious toleration in America. It doesn't, because he's got lots of territory, it doesn't really achieve it very well, but Rhode Island... That's a bit of a go at it. So, James does try for religious toleration. That's a good thing, yeah, yeah, I think definitely. we'd say, that he's definitely. trying to do that. So James has moral scruples. That's why he tries harder in religion. He has a genuine conversion following dedicated time of introspection. He really thinks about it and decides, yeah, that's the way to go, Catholicism. And he acknowledged he would have been a much more successful king if he kept the religion private. 
He, he kept it to that. himself. He acknowledges it privately, but he genuinely believed it was his duty from God to promote Catholicism, so he tried to do it. Mm. So it, as terrible as it ends up being, there's a bit of an admirable quality there. He believes in it and he tries to achieve it. Oh, definitely. He doesn't sit back with the easy life in the way that Charles II did. No, no, no. No, I mean, he's, yeah, it's more morally guided in a way, isn't he? Hard worker, much harder worker than Charles was. And he's got dynastic loyalty. He suffers criticism from Charles, but always stays loyal to him. Didn't try to become king in his mm-hmm. place and go along with Cromwell. And until his son's born, he was not going to try and sideline his Protestant daughters from inheriting the throne from him. Mm. The fact that they were Protestant didn't matter to him. He said, well, they are the next in line, therefore they will be the next in line. Yeah, that is good. It just he, 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 So he has a great point... Mm. It just goes about it in such a poor way. And, um, although this might not seem such a moral thing, but for an English perspective, we have development of empire in America here. Mm. American colonies, New England to Delaware River, New Amsterdam, uh, Reno, New York in his honour, because mm. he was the Duke of York. Yeah. So this was under Charles, technically. He was allocated land from uh, between the Hudson and the Delaware, so he gave it to some of his former colleagues on uh, Jersey. On Jersey, oh, like the, the, the island, island of Jersey, Jersey which is yeah. why we get New Jersey. New Jersey, right? So he ruled New York from afar as a sort of effectively a monarch. Set up first English garrison in America, mm. <coughs> Jamestown. Mm. Oh right, okay. And uh, New England as well. We incorporate the colonies of Massachusetts, Connecticut, New Hampshire, Rhode Island. But then there's the bad. Yeah. As we've touched upon, absolutism. Yeah, this is it. This is his great moral ideas, and this is how badly he goes about them. Yes, he sort of does it by rather tyrannical means. Mm. Dismisses Parliament when they refuse to repeal the Test Acts. Sought to control local elections by imposing his own test questions so that he'd get effectively pro-Catholic candidates. Local government places around 250 justices of the peace with Catholics and also other positions in towns and counties. So he wanted Catholics in positions of power. Yeah. Because they would support him. Mm. So that's not equal, is it? He's, got, he's mm. actually actively replacing rather than just allowing. Test acts, as we saw, he purged the bench of opposition judges so that they grant him licence to basically ignore the law as he saw fit. Mm. In the army, he wanted a standing army with Catholic officers. In Ireland, Talbot purged the Irish army Protestants, so about 40% of officers and 67% of the rank and file were now Catholic. Mm. Which, you know, we wouldn't in itself see that as a bad thing. That's much more representative of the population. But for an English sort of perspective, you're getting worried about what he's trying to do here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In education, as we saw in Magdalen College, he got rid of them when they wouldn't appoint a Catholic master. He said to them angrily, Is this your Church of England loyalty? Get you gone. No, I am your king. I will be obeyed and I command you to be gone. Oh, he's just so rubbish, isn't he? With the, uh, the bishop, suspended the Bishop of London for refusing to prevent indiscreet preaching and then charged those seven bishops with a seditious libel just for petitioning him. Mm. And there's elements of cruelty as well, not necessarily directly at his own hands, but um, after the Monroth Rebellion, uh, Chief Justice Jeffreys, um, in dealing with the captured rebels, had what was called the Bloody Assizes. Brutal and vindictive treatment of the rebels, bullied jurors and browbeat his own justices into getting the um, harshest possible punishments, regardless of evidence. Mm. Over 300 executed and thousands sent into slavery in the West Indies. Wow. Wow. And he was made Lord Chancellor by James afterwards. Right, yeah. Implication? In Scotland, he achieved a test act upon Presbyterians. 
So James is opposing test acts which prevent Catholics being officers in England. Yeah. While he under Charles II, when he went to Scotland, he actually helped get through a test act which stopped Presbyterians. So he's hypocritical as well. Yes. Brilliant. He is a bit hypocritical. And what's more, those with scruples who refused to take the act um, were treated savagely, and some of them had their legs crushed in a torture instrument called the boot. Oh, good grief. This... Oh. And also, James is in charge of a thing called the Royal African Company, <clears throat> which is a slaving company. 1680s transported somewhere in the round of 5,000 per year um, off into slavery, and apparently some, many of them were branded with the letters D-Y to stand for Duke of York. Really? Hmm. Wow. So that's not quite so good. No. God. And he's saying that they've got the same legal standing in... In his defence, we might say that he... Some say he sought to limit the cruelty in Scotland where possible and give people a chance to avoid it. And I'm not sure entirely how involved he was in the day-to-day running of the slave trade and how much he was just taking the money. Oh, God, Which obviously awful. morally is still bad, but that's, that's something so which subsequent monarchs will yeah. all be tainted by association with. <clears throat> Crumbs. There's more. Personality, in the way that we loved Charles II so much... Yeah. There's not a lot to love about James II. No. Limited intelligence. Yeah. Lacks social and political skills. Believes in the divine right of kings. See, the lesson he learned from Charles I was that compromise of any sort was a fatal weakness. And it's the exact opposite lesson that Charles II learned. Yes. Yeah. So he thought the reason that his father ended up being executed and losing the civil war was because he compromised. Mm. So James thinks, right, well, I'm not going to compromise at all. And, of course, ironically, that's pretty much the reason that James ends up getting yeah. kicked out of power. Yeah, yeah. Dislikes debate, because he can't really do it very well. As one occasion, we said, let the reasons be what they will. I am resolved not to do it. Mm. And he's unpopular. People don't really like him that much. No, no, Charles, on one occasion, when um, James um, remarked to him that he was concerned about Charles's security arrangements and whether people might try to assassinate him, Charles replied, don't worry, Jamie, they'll never kill me to make you king. <laughs> Charles, no, oh, you rogue. And um, he's just not very, very well thought of in the French court after the uh, Irish debacle. Here are a few of the quotes yeah. from people. Madame de Savine uh, said that James is courageous, but his intelligence is only mediocre. He recounts all that has happened in England with such indifference that that is all one can feel for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Archbishop of Reims says, uh, there goes a simpleton who has lost three kingdoms for a mass. Yeah. And uh, one other person, unidentified, said, when you listen to him, you realise why he's here. (laughs) These guys are great. (laughs) And ultimately, you know, as subjectivity, he fails. He inherits a strong crown from Charles II, Mm. such that he's able to exceed as a Catholic without any opposition, but in less than four years completely loses support. And subjectivity being not subjectivity, would you want to be his subject? Um, Absolutely not, because you've got three years of total upheaval, thinking you're going back, reverting a hundred years, even though he's doing it for what he sees as moral Mm. reasons, he goes about it the wrong way, people are going to be terrified, and ultimately there is chaos and it doesn't last long, it's hopeless. And it's by his own hand, his his aims of restoring Catholicism, however reasonable they're seeing now, mm. they're always going to huge, cause huge divisions. He failed to understand just how anti-Catholic yeah. the Anglicans, the Tories, people in the country were. They thought he was indistinguishable from absolutist monarchy. Mm. Yeah, well, it's, it's awful. 
So, you know, he dragged the country to the point of civil war in a totally unnecessarily. Yeah. They didn't pursue him in any way. He pushed things on them until they just finally broke. Yeah. So, 25 years after the Restoration, he drags Britain straight back into chaos. And the thing is, he's trying to be <clears throat> reasonable. Like, he's trying he's trying to promote a reasonable attitude, religious tolerance, in the most unreasonable <laughs> manner. Yes. Which ultimately leads people to fight each other. It's Almost the so only thing bad. you can say in his favour is that he is so incompetent that he isn't able or willing to put up a fight which saves England from yeah. potentially another civil war. And him, war. his own skin, yeah. The only reason it didn't get worse was that he was so useless. This is a John he ran scenario, away. isn't it? Because mm. he was just... I think John, John much more competent than... Uh, yeah, well, he's a bit more wily, wasn't James. he? James. So that's James's... Uh, oh, John's trouble was that he wasn't bad enough. Yes. This guy is too bad <laughs> and actually helped. So, how are we going to mark him for subjectivity? I... It's... Oh, slim so pickings. I it's would give him a little bit for his for what his moral fibre until I heard the sin a bit. Yeah, and the sin, the slavery, and, and the, the slavery. So, and he went about it hopelessly. It's an awful reign. I can't give him anything. I don't think he can. I can give him anything either. You know, the core of this: Would you want to be a subject? You absolutely wouldn't. And unlike Charles the First, where it was this brewing conflict of parliament versus monarchy mm. that was a bit more of a different era. This is just James deciding he wants to do something unnecessarily causing chaos. Yeah. Yeah, no, and at every level of of um, office. So you've got bishops, scholars, just of the peace, officers. He's just going in and saying, no, <laughs> you're out, you're out. Oh, it's terrible. So that is zero for subjectivity for James II. Longevity. Well, he rules from uh, 1685 to 1688, which is 3.83 <laughs> years. That's pretty bad. So we type that into our calculator, and that gives him a score of 1.2. That's awful. Well done, James. <laughs> Dynasty, not the programme. He has four children, legitimate children mm-hmm. in all. Technically, two of them are legally barred from the throne by Parliament after 1688. Indeed, one of them is born after he's no longer king. Right. The other two succeed him. And they're barred because they're Catholic? Yes. Yeah. Or should we give him Make the three that he's got when he's king? Well, maybe, actually. That's a good point, actually. But then again, you know, if the other one had successfully taken the throne and not had any children, the other one would have been the heir. But they didn't. They didn't. But are we judging that on looking back with modern eyes? I suppose I suppose for James, the you know, if for the, the dynasty score, I suppose the the main thing you really ask them to do is, you know... Produce some... Yeah, yeah, produce some airs and see it through. Yeah. So I think he needs all the help we can get. All right, yeah, give him another one. We'll give him four, and and which, as a dynasty score, is 6.68. It bumps it up a bit. Yeah. Uh, but that gives him a total of 26.38, which is, uh, well, let's just say it's not one of our highest scores. Um, you know, it's not done yet. We're not We've there got yet. to consider whether or yeah. not he has that great achievement, yeah. the lasting legacy... The star quality, the sense of greatness. Rex Factor! Come on, give me one thing. <laughs> one thing. Um, dressed as a girl? Yep, that'll do. That'll do. He keeps that going, at least. On the other hand, it's completely disastrous reign. Losing his throne without putting up a fight that he should have won anyway. Spent about two-thirds of his life in exile. Mm. 
after him, Catholics are barred from the throne or from um, being married to the monarch. Severe divisions in Ireland. It's an appallingly bad reign. Yeah, I can't. I can't think of a redeeming fact. I I like the big naval battle, but he wasn't king at the time. And I, there's a little bit of dressing up. James, sorry, is definitely not getting it. No, it's a no for me as well. I think probably a contender to have been one of the worst kings. Yeah, definitely. But certainly not one of the best. So that's a no for James II. He doesn't join his brother on the Rex Factor Mountain. He's failed. Yeah, bad luck. Well, not bad luck, actually. It's your own fault. Yes, it's entirely <laughs> his own fault. Um, let us know what you think. If um, you are mad and disagree that you think he should have got it, <laughs> you can email us, rexfactorpodcast.hotmail.com. Follow us uh, on Twitter at RexFactorPod. Look for the RexFactor page on Facebook. Facebook, Um, Or leave a comment on the website. So that's it for James II. He's failed utterly. Next time we'll see if his daughter and son-in-law together can do better. Yes. Cheerio. See you next time. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 